0: In this conversation, I had the pleasure of chatting with Pat Howard, ex-Wallaby, ex-head coach for the Leicester Tigers Rugby Club, ex-manager of team performance for Cricket Australia and the current CEO of Empower MSL Limited, an ASX-listed sports software business. During our chat, we talked about Pat's transition from player to coach, coach to sports administrator and administrator to CEO and many of the challenges he faced along the way. There is so much contradiction inside leadership. It requires courage and sensitivity, boldness yet humility, and respect, while at times the strength to be unpopular. It was so clear from our chat that Pat has grown into a leader with all of these qualities in spades. To be able to learn from him, even for a moment, was a gift. I hope you learn as much from our chat as I did. Enjoy. This is David Hobart from Beyond the Obvious, the podcast in search of unexpected insights for investment professionals. Pat, really great to be able to sit down and have a chat today. Um, you know, I've, I've been really looking forward to it. So maybe we could tee off uh, with a, you know, go back into the dark days of uh, all the deep history of uh, your playing career as a rugby player um, and how you went from transitioning from playing rugby into coaching rugby you seem to do that sort of fairly smoothly from from the outside and you did it fairly smartly so how, how was that transition for you yeah look when i eventually transitioned there
1: was a lot a lot of steps along the way look and and you got to start with you know 1991 dad was the assistant coach of the wallabies when they won my mother is the first woman to coach first grade men's and this is well before hashtag me too back in the you know the yeah. 80s and 90s so um, look I, I had a feel for coaching I was blessed by um, two parents that were experts in it so you would hope that I at least had a definite front foot on this in saying that there were two probably triggers that people aren't aware of one is uh, on the formation of the Brumbies you know we didn't really have any money. So Rob McQueen was the head coach and, you know, he had a uh, Jeff Jones, who's now CEO of Ticket Tech, um or TPG. He was a sort of an assistant coach, but still in the military. And we had a smart team. And so everybody had to step up and coach and analyze. And, you know, that's the Ewan McKenzie's, myself, the Stephen Larkham's, Rod Kafer's, Brett Robertson's, Dave Givens, all these guys, have coached at varying levels. So all of us were coaching and that, and that was at 21, 22. I think that's one thing that people, you know, they saw it as cappuccino power or whatever else, but it was because of, there was less coaches, people had to come in and fill the void. And you see that in business. I think the second one, um, when I was coaching at Leicester, Joel Stransky um, moved on towards the end of his career and then I took on a playing coaching role in uh, the 2000-2001 season. So I was a player coach, I was 26, um, Mm. and, you know, got a great – uh, ability to have to go in and get the niceties of being an assistant coach with actually having to make the difficult, tough decisions on selection and rotation and all those sorts of other things that you've got to do in managing a squad over a long period. And, and look, we had a very successful year, great team, really well established. doesn't hurt when you've got someone like Martin Johnson coaching, uh, captaining the team, um, but it was a wonderful intro. So by the time I finished and I had the opportunity to go back I couldn't get a visa to play so I was sort of um, 30 and I was still very very keen to play Um, the only alternative left was to coach and I took that enthusiasm in to coaching Um, so coached through to when I was 33 Um, I had played with nearly everybody that was there and um, it was a really excellent learning curve and one of the best educations I've got um, you had to deal with agents. You had to deal with managing a board. You had to manage sideways, and the people management side was amazing. Getting people up for every Saturday, picking and dropping players, telling them the bad news. You know, you've got to pack up your house. You got to move your family of five kids to a, a different country. Um, you know, these are really great lessons to learn, and they're really hard. And um, so, I, I thought it was one of the great um opportunities it was hard and i loved it and um but it, it, there was a lot to learn about coaching head coaching is very very different from assistant coaching and um it's no different for me from being a director of rugby to being a ceo of a listed company they're, they're, the similarities are really really um similar deal with people find out what's material get to the things that are urgent, try and own the room if you can, um, manage up, down and sideways. So I uh, I really love that role. It was really interesting and it was a lot of pressure. And uh, you were judged much like the stock market, You were judged every week on winning and losing and you got feedback every week. <laughs> so it was, it was a wonderful job.
0: Wow. Pat, what a setup. Like, uh, you know, there's so much to cover in what you've just said. I mean, can we, before we sort of go into the, Culture of coaching. Uh, I'd love to just firstly acknowledge both of your parents. Uh, I mean, I had the absolute, you know, pleasure of being coached not as a wallaby, but at um, at UQ uh, in the forwards. Uh, your father was a forwards coach there, And so I had you know x number of sessions with him as a forwards coach, which was an absolute treat. But also your mum, uh, Marguerite, she was my brother's coach in. Uh, rugby at school which uh, so I've yeah had that pleasure and um, you know both of your parents were um, you know albeit minor but uh, significant and memorable parts of my growing up experience so um, you know
1: I can understand
0: how that uh, had had such a positive impact on you as a coach uh, uh, obviously as a person but as a coach
1: no david look and um you you get very lucky on where you're born you might be born in the right country or with the right parents and uh you know um i have a very fortunate upbringing with um uh mum and dad um not just rugby with life we lived on the showgrounds together mum and dad were trained school teachers so um you know i, I grew up in ghost houses and dodging cars and um mum taught me the whole <laughs> way around so uh I've, um, as as my CFO says, I've got a, a, a fixation with cash, and it probably goes back to uh, those days of dealing on the showgrounds, but also the rugby side of of being very close with my parents. So I, I really appreciate you saying that about mum and dad. Um, I think the same way.
0: Yeah, no, great. Um, so Pat, back to uh, sort of coaching and coaching culture. Like, I mean, your first sounds like I mean you you obviously did coaching uh, as a player, sort of you know involved in that coaching process when you're at the Brumbies, but, but then when, when you went to the UK, you know, you were a player coach and I just wonder from a cultural perspective, you know, what that's like sort of, uh, you know, corralling the troops as a co, you know, as a, as a player, as well as a coach, like, and how that related to then when you became head coach, like what, what the difference was.
1: Yeah, I think, um, The playing coach was an assistant role. So you had the the ability to deal with the technical changes, be able to make changes on the ground. You had the ability to be humble on the field, to be able to go, look, you're not perfect. (laughs) And you make mistakes as a player and as a coach. I think once you go to those head coaching roles and you've got to have the very difficult decisions and discussions with players. You can only pick 15 in any given week. You can only pick, at that time, it was 22 players in a squad. And trying to put yourself, because you're so current, um, then when you had those head player coaching roles, you had to make decisions. I had to exit staff that um, I believe either weren't a great fit, even though they're very capable people, weren't always the perfect fit for the culture that we were um, dealing with, you know, I spent eleven years of my time in effectively two clubs, the Brumbies and Leicester, and whilst the other two clubs, uh, professional clubs, I played for Claremont and Reds, but Reds wasn't professional at the time, only because we weren't paid. We, we trained very, mm-hmm. very hard um, under John Connolly, and, and it was a really successful team. Um, that eleven years were very two different, very cultures. You know, you, you had. Um, the Brumbies which was you know we really couldn't be the biggest we couldn't be the strongest so we we had to be the smartest and everybody had a piece of paper that's how we started out and we we Rod McQueen led an incredibly innovative culture where anything was on the table I then went to Leicester where the culture was far more about this is a spit and sawdust tough working class you earn the right and um and I, what I loved about both of them is contrasting as those cultures were, um, they were very clear. So you knew what you had to do. You knew who fit and who didn't fit. And I've enjoyed that working in organisations where the culture is clear versus where the culture is not clear. And I think some leaders and some coaches and and. They will implant their team and without taking a feel for where the organisation's been or what you're trying to transition to. You know, it, you don't want to cookie-cutter your approach every time. And your ability to assess is this organisation uh, in transition, in turnaround, building on the back of successes? Um, has, it, has it got a government background? Has it been slow to move has it been incredibly agile what, what is the underlying culture and as a consequence how do you improve it and i've really that from those two organizations learning that there is not just one way to deal with something um was a fantastic cultural assessment to learn you know in your early 30s um yeah. you know those two huge contrasting organizations
0: yeah. And I wonder, Pat, you know, the friction that you might've experienced, like as a, as a assistant coach player, you know, it sounds to me like, you know, the approach from your perspective would have been very collaborative, even in a, you know, in, at Leicester, which as you describe, is a, was a very different culture to the Brumbies. Like what sort of friction did you come up against, you know, when it, came to the time where you were head coach like did you did you try to bring a collaborative approach at first into a into a more cut and thrust almost corporatish kind of culture in that Leicester head coach playing role or like like what did you learn through that you know through the friction was there friction Or were you able to adapt very quickly?
1: Well, the starting points were different. So when I was player coach, that was the 2000 and 2001 season. I'd been just a player for the first two years uh, Ah. after leaving the Brumbies. And uh, so it was an incredibly successful team. We'd already won two premierships and uh, we're looking for the three-peat and going for Europe and all those sorts of things. So you were building on success. So Mm. um, that was a very much... There have been really good performances. The, the core of the team is great. How do we increase the depth of player to increase the succession planning, decrease injury status, make sure that if people are going that they they go with their blessing, etc. The second time I went to Leicester was a turnaround. Um, they had dropped mm. off a little bit, you know, but to the high standards that Leicester were at the time, um, I think they had just missed out on Europe. Maybe seventh in the Premiership, something like that, and it was a turnaround opportunity, and it required um, a far firmer hand. Um, so you know, and you have to make tough decisions that way. You had to bring in um, some people that were going to address the most obvious gaps, and then continually assess that over a period of time. So I think um, the second time it was a firmer hand. There were I was dealing with a board for the first time, um, and you dealt with the panic of sport. So sport management, you know, teams will win and lose on any given day. You know, we're doing this podcast mm. the week, you know, after the the, um, the Wallabies had a very, you know, a, a fantastic draw, you know, and mm-hmm. I hope everybody keeps their calm no matter what the result is next week, you know, because mm. there is some obvious – good stuff happening that people need to keep calm with. I saw we topped our pool in Europe, lost the quarterfinal to the team that came eighth and had to justify why I would not uh, stay in my role the following day in front of the board. And I remember that very clearly, that I'd, you'd, you'd had to manage that well in advance to say, look, this is what I'm going to achieve. This is what I want to be accountable to. Please sign off and hold the governance to. And then you say to the board. I achieved everything I said I was going to achieve. Um, you know, very interesting. And the, the cricket analogy, you know, obviously we're left under certain circumstances that were obviously very high profile. But at the time, we we did hold the ashes. You know, we held the women's ash. We held the, the World Cup. And, you know, you've got to go sometimes to trying to manage – and remember what, why you started the journey. You have to adapt or or good and fair, but sports are really interesting one where there's a lot of emotion on the last result versus what are you building over time and can you keep your head on the, the big prize at the end of the, the end. And that's always very difficult to do for some people.
0: Yeah. But I wanted to, you know, we'll come to cricket in a minute, if that's okay. I just, I just wonder from a a cultural perspective, like when you were a player uh, assistant coach at Leicester, and then you had how many years in between before you came back as the head coach? Three Three. years. So you you would have, so I was going to say, you would have had some institutional memory, and the the people in the club had some institutional memory of you. So even though you came back uh, at a different point in the club's, well, call it success curve uh and with a different imperative that how much did that institutional memory for you help in terms of being able to bring people along with you for the changes that you needed to make
1: yeah look and and i went back wary in that regard you know i had two stints at the brumbies three years and two years and then two stints at the leicester three years and three years Mm. and um when I went back to the Brumby second time after leaving Leicester, um, it was, you know, it was different. They'd had success uh, really built during that period. It was a change in focus and I had to adapt. And it was, it was probably um, a playing style that didn't suit me as well. And um, there were some really good players coming through. And so um, it was a lesson I took from that seconds to the problem is that I've got to remember it's not the same second time. So going yeah. back to less the second time, I, I very much treated look, I, I'm going in as a coach. I'm gonna have to be very fair with the players, but they're gonna think of me how they left me as a as a as a guy that was a, a player. And look, there were some relationships of very close mates that took a long time to rebuild after that period because those guys didn't get picked or um yeah. there's not many that there were one or two guys that really struggled with the change in relationship, and I understand why. And, um, and I, you know, I, I think they're fantastic blokes, but it was a really difficult period then for them a couple of years where they didn't get to play in a European Cup final they might, might have wanted to, or they didn't get picked in the premiership game and win the flag like they had in the past. And these are really difficult decisions because you've only got 15 spots to pick. And yeah. um, and they you, they were a difficult message. So I, I took um, an adage from one of the Australian coaches, actually, a Greg Smith, who passed away a fair while ago. But Greg used to do something where he would pick and drop people together. So you'd bring the player in, and you would um, that's going to be picked, and you pick the player that's going to be dropped, and you would have the conversation together. Um, one it meant that you know I had to be very very clear. You, you couldn't bullshit for want of a better term. You know, you couldn't, yeah. um, you, you had to be accountable uh, to what you said. And it was really transparent to all involved why the decisions were made and if why, you know, if a player was being dropped, why they were being dropped and if it's not forever um, and they've got the opportunity to get back in if they do X, Y, and Z. And so you, you learn from so many people along the way and, um, and, but it was different. And, um, but you want different experiences, so I, I really am glad that I got to experience both the Brumbies and Les the second time in a very different way.
0: Yeah, I, I'm curious as to how or what you took from the coaching experience too into your, I mean, moving into sports administration. You know, into you know the high performance focus first at, at, at Rugby Australia before you went to uh, Cricket Australia. But so. How, how was that different going from a co- in a coaching capacity to to you know still a high performance focus but in an administration function how, how did that work yeah look i think
1: In terms of dealing with your silo, your area, um, it wasn't too bad because you could have a conversation with a coach and go, look, I've been a coach, so I understand where you're Mm. coming from. Or I've been a player, I understand where you're coming from. Or I've, you know, been a member of the player's association, so I understand that perspective. So from that end, it was really good. I think your commentary becomes more complicated as you go as well. So if you, particularly in international sport, and I think, you know, if you say something about, um, in Australia, you might be offending a New Zealand or a South Africa or an England or a, a you might be mm. offending a player's association. In the end, you will end up offending somebody usually or you say nothing. <laughs> and um, yeah. so, you know, as a player, you get to talk about yourself most often. As a captain, you probably then start talking about the team. As a, as a coach, you, you should be talking about your players all the time. And as administrator, you're talking about the game. And mm-hmm. in any way, give a the, the, your communication style does, ha- does change and adapt. and You've got to be so much more aware of so many other levers as you adapt. But look, I, I thought it was a fairly reasonable transition. Um, uh, player to coach was a lot harder. Um, coach to sports admin was, it was the pace of decision making that you had to get more used to so as a coach you come in you change a player you take them off the 60 minute mark on comes to someone else you, you make decisions quickly and uh the game will start at three o'clock on a saturday whether you like it or not um when you go into administration sometimes long-term decisions can take a very long time and um and then you have to be able to see the growth in them you know i how often does a business do a, a, a you know a ten year strategy every two years? Um, sometimes you've mm-hmm. got to let the strategy play out, and um, that's something that takes a bit of time to adapt to.
0: Yeah, yeah, I wonder as well uh, on the administration side that the you know you as you say you sort of uh, you're above it a little bit in the sense that you've got you, you've got to manage your communication, but just all the expectations from all the different stakeholders because. I mean, from where I sit, I can, you know, everyone's a critic and everyone knows, you know, exactly what to do next to turn any team around or to turn any code around. I mean, if you look at rugby today, everyone is a armchair expert uh, and it must be very tricky, you know, when you're in the hot seat of the manager of high performance in the midst of a professional sport, uh, setting the strategy and then bringing those stakeholders along and, um, how how does stakeholder management go when I mean, let's look at cricket australia as a as, a, as an example uh, from your experience like who are the stakeholders and 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 how did you have to manage that process
1: well this is where rugby and cricket have so many similarities and it's really good this you've obviously got the states and 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 the pipeline of talent that is coming underneath and mm-hmm. this is where you know if you take Rugby right now, you know, the Australian 18s won last year. The Australian 20s made the final against uh, France. Um, And France have won two in a row. So there's something really good happening, say, in France's high performance, even though the the top team may not have been winning recently. Um, And then cricket's very similar. You've got the states. You have the player associations. You have the international bodies. um, And obviously some are, are, are very big in that process, and some are, um, work far more through the ICC, and, and rugby's very similar. You've got world rugby, you've got some powerhouses in the English and French clubs, and then you've got um, you know, other, other major nations, and then you've got a, a, an emerging second tier set of nations. And So you've got to be able to have a look at the pipeline of those junior teams, your clubs, Schools, particularly, um, you know, rugby's clubs are are very condensed into sort of Brisbane, Sydney, Canberra, for want of a better term. You know, there are clubs elsewhere, but they're mm-hmm. they're very important with some country, and then those those private school is a really uh, important part of of rugby's um, side. Uh, cricket, uh, I think from memory, there are eighty seven premier grade clubs. They're incredibly important to as junior players are coming through. Um, the Australian 19s is usually a very good indicator of uh, future success. You know, a lot of players can nearly all come through that. And then you had, obviously, the Shields and the 20s, and there were lots of different ways to come through in cricket. But rugby had sevens as well, and you had players coming through. So there's so many different similarities, so many similarities between those two because there were it was international and domestic. There were multiple formats. There was male and female. Um, and they were very very strongly federated models. So um, it was really interesting whilst everybody thought it was very different from an administration point of view. On reflection, they were very, very similar.
0: Yeah, interesting. It must be uh, fascinating too because, like, everyone looks to the national team as a measure of, well, let's call it high-performance success, uh, and and they look at the national team in the moment to determine – the, the measure of success uh, as whereas the high performance you know strategizing you know I'm not sure over what time horizon say cricket australia would look at their high performance pathways or their you know their pipeline but you know you, you the public measures today's performance or uses that as the scoreboard for a multi-year period of you know developing high performance pathways so i don't know that seems hard to manage from from my perspective it, it is big
1: because there is the short termism uh and mm. you've got to get your team up to succeed in the key moments and then look i, I think from a cricket australia version um you know i wasn't at rugby australia or, or what was uh, you know um you at the time for very long in the first period i missed the birth of my fourth child and um uh, my wife made us have a joint decision um, around around <laughs> leaving that and going off to becoming chief of operations at Cromwell um, and moving back to Brisbane permanently. And so that was mm. there it was it wasn't a long time there, um, but. Uh, the, the the cricket one was pretty simple. We they just lost the Ashes at home. They'd lost the uh, quarter final of the World Cup in 2011. And look, the, there was a clear focus. We're going to win the World Cup in 2015. We're going to increase our strength and make women's cricket a really strong platform. And um, and we're going to win the Ashes now. Um, you know, 2013. You were pretty much written off at home, and they, it was a very dominant 5-0 performance. And Michael Clark led a team around brilliantly, and he had confidence in that team. Um, you know, it, it was – and it was transitioning what was a fantastic but aging bowling attack, you know, wonderful players. And then by the time you get to 2019, winning away became – the next, be the first team to win away was going to be the big challenge. And, and that was going to be, you know, and that was such a successful tour with Tim Payne last year. So I, I, the, the the long-term stuff is, you know, you know, it does take time and you have to, can you honestly see the team getting better? And, um, Australia continually all through the period and still remains so very strong at home and continually adapting to get better overseas. You know, my, my favourite tour was actually a tour that we lost, which was the 2017 Indian tour. And um, I think Steve O'Keefe got 12 for, uh, that won the first test in Pune away. And it was just this dawning moment where we can play differently in different countries. Um, and I really love that. And it was a really, that's the sort of stuff where you see the growth and they Mm. they won a test lost a test drew a test and went down to the wire and a fantastic series um and that's where in high performance you've got to be able to see are we improving um the end of the the journey sometimes is is usually clear i think we went into the world cup in 2015 as clear favorites i think um in the women's cricket you know you that is such a strong, sustainable team now um, that they've just won't, gone to 21 wins uh, and they didn't have their two best players, Meg Lanning and Elise Perry, playing the last game. So it's, um, you know, they're, they're really building some great depth and capability there. And Matthew Mott has done a wonderful job with Meg and all the team leading mm. that through. So you love being able to see that build and um, mm. you don't always need to be there for as... as um, you know, I often said to uh, James Sullivan, "You don't, you didn't need to be there when uh, they're popping the champagne corks. That wasn't what you did it for. You did it for the growth and the build. So
0: it was a really enjoyable
1: job. I really enjoyed yeah. working with the guys. And um, you know, I, I see it as a, a fascinating part of um, a work history.
0: Yeah, for sure. Before we leave that, Pat, I just was curious about the you know, you're talking to the national team. So you're talking to the women's team and the the men's team. And, um, but, you know, in the high performance build out, my guess is, you know, and you touched on it earlier about, you know, there's the clubs and the juniors and the states and the, like. How, how does the, how does Cricket Australia sort of fund all of that and how do you make sure that, you know, if you're looking 10 years out, how do you, how do you make sure that the, like, have you got measures along the way for all those mm. different parts of the game, like to make sure that the high performance uh, funnel, if you like, is has enough depth? How does that work?
1: Yeah, and look, there's always
0: um, the history of sport, particularly in Australia. You'll go
1: through a centralization period, you know, where oh, the, the central body's got to run everything, and then mm. uh, someone will go, well, that's not working. We'll decentralise and stick them all back in the states, and, and you see this happen when you go and study. Um, the big sports are a long period of time. You get centralised, decentralised, centralised, decentralised. So I very much yeah, was an advocate of these uh, centralised side. Um, they're going back to a decentralised mm-hmm. model at the moment or heading that way. Um, and that's fine. Absolutely understand that. No problem with that at all. And who, um, um,
0: where's, the fundi- where's the funding for that? Like, And how, how does the funding yeah, so- work? Yeah. yeah, so the big sports,
1: you know, media rights are your biggest driver. So, uh, and that yeah. is a top-down model. Um, uh, some of the other sports, let's say soccer, due to high participation, um, you know, they they have a funding model which um, you know generate. Uh, from participants and the fees go up up the chain rather than down. And rugby's got a little bit of both, uh, depending on where the yep. meteorites land. Um, so depending – and then some of the very small sports rely solely on government funding, the Olympic sports, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, uh, trying to drive those. I think, you know, people – people looked at BBL as this huge money spinner uh, for years. And it, it really, it took a long, long time to get to that point. You don't, mm. uh, you, I had to explain to a player one day, he said, oh, you, Cricket Australia is making all this money from people coming to games. And I said, well, you know, it's what does it cost to go to a game? And they said, oh, it's 10 bucks at the time for a, a, a person to get in or 20 bucks at the time. And I said, well, yes, yes. you know, there's 50,000 people here and that's, that's half a million dollars. And... I can tell you that's not all net. We have to hire the stadium and the guards and all that sort of stuff. And I know your wage is well above half a million. And there's a lot more players here than that. So, you know, trying to get them to see
0: the maths. Do do the
1: maths. um, (laughs) Do the maths um, was was really interesting. And um, But, uh, you know, there are different models for different sports to run. Um, But, yeah, the big sports do rely heavily on that. Meteorites and that content, you see that at the moment where – You know, when content is, um, matches are are compromised or they don't believe they're going to get what they're going to get, you know, um, you might see some of the TV stations going, well, you know, we're not getting what we paid for type thing. So, in Mm. a very unique scenario. So, it's a really fascinating um, industry. Um, Mm. And, you know, there is the sport aspect, there's the operational side, there's the media meteorite side, there's the performance side versus the spectacle side. You know, it, it is amazing. I still, uh, you know, when people compare coming fourth at the Olympics and that's a disappointment, but if you come fourth in the NRL, that's a great season. I still struggle with that. <laughs> you know, I, I, I look at that as, um, you know, the optics of, of – uh, world competition versus leagues and, um, you know, it, it is something that uh, – because I really admire international competition and I do put a premium on it. I respect great yeah. competitions. I've played them in England, as we talked about earlier, you mm-hmm. know, um, and I'm English English premierships and Europeans. But, you know, there is – you know, to be the best of the best globally is something pretty special. And um, so I do put a premium on, you know, international – um, performances and international winning and, and um, getting to play for your country.
0: Yeah. So on that note, Pat, high performance, I mean, you've had a lot to do with it over the years in various settings. And I wonder, you know, both positively and negatively, so what, what do you think positively impacts, you know, whether it's culture or, you know, specific actions within team environments, like what positively uh, affects performance and what you know definitely negatively affects performance. And, and this is a multifaceted question, but the other yeah. part to it is how is that, in your view, sort of transferable across uh, sports or industries? You know, because you've had, you've had multiple sports and multiple industries yeah. that you've worked in.
1: Yeah, I think, look, and, and high performance is an overused term. You know, I think there are some sports that, you know, let's take cycling or rowing where, the blade entry, or the you know getting the ribs on the socks right, or the right suit in swimming, you know, they're genuinely about the zero point zero one second differences. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, my role in cricket was called team performance. I was in charge of every all teams from fifteen years of age and up, national teams, um, and uh, both men's and women. So there was lots of different moving pieces. And players mm-hmm. moving between BBL and Australia and clubs and 19s and 17s and so many competing interests that you were just trying to get the most optimal outcome at the and you're always going to um, fall foul of something at some stage um, mm-hmm. uh, if you're going to make change. So I they were, were the performance side and the, the terminology I I I, I'm, I don't die in a ditch on it, but it, I always find it a funny term. I think my next – my view on, look, you do have to set goals and targets and be really strong on it. Accountability, you know, people talk about it and they always, Mm. when they have their lovely value sessions and sit down and do their – oh, we want to be accountable. Uh, We believe in it, except unless I've got to be accountable. Um, I don't think people really love accountability as much as they think they do. Um, And changing that culture, making it very transparent – here is the person with the best results. Here is the person that's hitting the mark. Um, you know, you've got to try and get people to get that extra 5% out of themselves. And um, and they can all do. Set your expectation. If you believe that coming fifth is good enough, then, you know, you, you, you'll be happy coming fifth. Um, and you do have to raise the bar. And so many organisations do it. Um, and the challenge is then the follow-through, the big follow-through of just being able to go, no, no, I've got to make sure that um, we deal with those that aren't towing the line of, of all the agreed collaborative things that you agreed together. Because rarely do people go off and go, I'm going to set the rules. Most people go off and go, let's have the session. What do we all stand for? And we'll all do it together and they'll all sit down together and then when they apply it to themselves six months later, they go, oh, yeah, oh, we did agree that or I forgot I agreed that or (laughs) that's that accountability piece and and setting a a higher bar. Um, And, uh, you know, you've got to stretch for it. You're not going to win all the time, but you've got to at least aim high.
0: So that that must be – interesting bringing that perspective into, you know, running the company you're currently running, like, you know, going from that high performance sporting setting into uh, the corporate environment. Again, I know it's not your first foray into the corporate environment, but uh, I don't know that it, it occurs to me that you're very well equipped for that transition Uh, How are you finding it in terms of, uh, you know, managing stakeholders and setting expectations and, you know, how's that transition worked for you?
1: Yeah, look, and and once again, you you know, I was far more in a a suit than a track suit at Cricket Australia and at Rugby Australia, you know, so I was presenting to boards, presenting executive management teams, um, you know, you know. It's take it's cricket, cricket Australia, cricket Australia's big. It's a it's a big business, and it's mm-hmm. uh, you know the 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 last um, you know player negotiation. You know, we, you know, you were talking of revenues of one point six billion over you know best part of four or five years, and you know the players will get four hundred fifty million or so of that or whatever it is, and you know that's a lot of money. Um, yeah, so wow. you, you know you're dealing now. I'm, you know, MSL where I am, uh, you know, has revenues between, you know, over the last couple of years, 25 to 30 million, that sort of stuff. So the numbers are a lot different. Um, they're smaller and, and it's it actually goes back to that startup adage far more, which is, you know, how do we get our sleeves rolled up? How do you, you know, Dennis DeNuto, you're, you, you you do the CEO role, but you also then go and make the cup of tea and turn the printer on or off, and um,
0: yes, you still swear it a few it. times.
1: Exactly. So you mm-hmm. you um, but you you have to set. Um, what we're trying to achieve, you know, and I I haven't gone out to to set the long-term strategy. This business was a turnaround business. Let's go back to the Leicester conversation we had earlier. It was Mm -hmm. a turnaround process. So um, we had to to start with operational, start with making sure the turnaround could happen. And, you know, cricket had a little bit of that, but had, had better funding. Uh, rugby, when I joined that, Rugby Australia didn't have a lot of funding at that point in 2007. Leicester had a bit more. So you've got to adapt to those needs and your balance sheet and what yeah. you can do. You've got to find out who your great people are. And you've got to find um, where the people are that um, you probably can do without, who aren't going to come on the journey with you. Um, the slow adopters, for want of a better term. And because mm. you've got to make sure you're there beforehand and look if i hadn't made the changes in the back half of calendar year um 2019 that we had look covid would have been a disaster but fortunately because we made those changes we got well ahead um the thing that cricket australia prepared before in dealing with what it was a very remote workforce now is you know we had a weekly call and if you're in the west indies or you're in australia or you're in india or you're in south africa we had the call and you had to have those remote teams and you had to build trust through remote teams. You couldn't be everywhere at any given time. Um, You know, right now I'm I'm running teams where, you know, there's, there's people in Denmark, there's people in England. We have offices in Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, and you've got to build trust. You've got to be able to do what you say you're going to do. And because you you can't watch people every second of every day. And, Hmm. um, you know that's a really interesting point when you're in the process of building trust in your first year, um, and then COVID hit. You're going, "Geez, well, I would love to jump on a plane to continue to help these people through this this process and um, or this period, and, and you can't." So I've, I've really, I've actually, I've actually really enjoyed the management challenge, um, but it, it it hasn't been completely unique or completely different, no.
0: No, well, it it, it I mean, it sounds to me your capacity to make tough decisions is a pretty helpful thing, certainly in a turnaround setup uh, in a corporate environment. Um, but I suppose the other side to that is seeing the opportunity too, like, and then being able to, you know, charge for that opportunity. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I know you, there's probably things you can't talk about as a CEO, but I, I'm curious about the actual opportunity set for MSL, you know, given the I know you're into sport stadiums and uh, you know sporting software, you know, and cricket and cricket Australia and the markets that are out there. Like, how is your relationships in cricket? Is that enabling you? You know, in other parts of the world as well. Is that is that opening up opportunity or? Yeah, how does that well, work? well, well, it is, and and and
1: in the sports industry, um, lots of people seem to you know, you, you know. You know most people <laughs> um, and you know the global side of those things. So, um, you know, 45% of our revenue is golf management systems in uh, Denmark is one business. Now, I didn't have a lot of contacts in Denmark when I started this out. That'd be fair. Um, but you, you did find, you know, very quickly, you know, there was one or two South Africans in the office. They knew their rugby. There was a very handy walk in there um Mm. in golf australia the ceo of golf australia is my old boss james sutherland from um cricket australia now that's Mm. fortuitous and and but you know you you do know the people that go between these organizations um look in the venue space you know we've had to uh you have to deal with operational matters all the time across england and um, Australia and so you had to know the stadium operators, you had to know those people on the ground um, you had to often deal with changes very very quickly so um, there are some uh, if it's not the person that you already knew, it's it's one person on and you've had a long time in the game now look, uh, the other part of MSL is in the pub and club space and it's amazing to see our chairman um, Tony Tui, who's had a lifetime in pubs and clubs and he knows everybody in the bubble club mm-hmm. sector and, and it's amazing that the two of us have really divided those two sectors up um, and you know I take the responsibility of the sport and he takes the responsibility over the other venues and it's been really lovely to see people who are experts in area um, that, that I'm not an expert in and uh, and I assuming for him vice versa um, just to be able to go and see how you can dovetail and work with complementary people that you barely, you you didn't know before. And I I didn't know Tony before I started this role. Um, And uh, it's been great working with with that and to be able to try and drive that change.
0: Yeah. Well, it sounds like uh, an interesting space to be in. Obviously, COVID, uh, you know, has presented challenges. But, you know, our post-COVID world, uh, yeah, I mean, and I keep thinking of India, of course, just uh, in the stadium space as well, like, you know, because of course they don't love cricket. Um, <laughs> oh, it, it, it's, a, it's
1: amazing yeah. to educate people on the subcontinent and cricket. And, you, and um, you know, this data might be out of date, but there was a period there where, on a per match basis, IPL was more valuable or the most valuable sport in the world. And, you know, mm. when you tell an American that, it's, it's so hard for them to understand. But I go, you have to go, look, 1.3 billion. And there's one sport, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's it just huge scale. Um, you know, and mm. people forget that Bangladesh has 200 million people. You, Sri Lanka has the same population as Australia. Pakistan have a huge population. And cricket's the biggest game there by a mile. It's huge scale, absolutely huge scale. And um, look, they, they are fascinating countries, very, very different in their own right. Um, from each other so um, and it's been wonderful to to learn the nuances of those those countries and areas um, but there is there is huge opportunity and scale to be able to continue to do that um, the golf business has exposed us to different parts of the world as well and, and different nuances but um, look it hasn't been a million miles away the sport the business of sport is similar um, we mm. talked about rugby and cricket before you know um, there, where there will be things that will be different but essentially you you know what most sports uh, both their strengths and weaknesses are what they're trying to do um, uh, within and they're all trying to reinvent themselves at different times so um, but look I, 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 I have found it funny with you know the early days of MSL you know why aren't we dealing with the transactional you know side of the business where you make money from every time some a, a spectator goes to a game and now, we got really hurt in March and April because everybody thought that's how we earned our money instead of Mm -hmm. an annual bill from a stadium or a venue, et cetera, et cetera, and and trying to educate the market that, no, no, look, that's not how we work. Uh, has been really interesting. Um, I saw this in my days at Cromwell where I started there in sort of 2008, global financial crisis was kicking in and the same analyst, um, you know, in March went – Uh, you've got a lazy balance sheet, um, you've got to have more leverage. Six months later, um, you're you're over leveraged and uh, uh, Cromwell had not changed. The, the, The LVR was exactly the same, just the perception had changed. And this is where what sport does help you with, I think, is you can ride the ups and downs of the share price, just like wins and losses, far better. You don't look at the share price every day. You try and deal with the fundamentals of improvement.
0: Well, and that's refreshing to hear from a CEO of an ASX-listed company, Pat. So yeah, that sounds that's <laughs> that's pretty good. Yeah, um, Pat, I I've uh, loved this. It's been such a gift having a uh, ha- having a chat about s- such a interesting background. I'm. Um, oh. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to to sit down and have a chat. Did you did you want to? Is there anything else you kind of wanted to part with before we get your details?
1: No, not really, mate. I, I, Dave, I've, I've really enjoyed it as well. And look, of all the things that I really enjoyed, I, I'm really glad you thanked. Um, you said thank you about mum and dad. So, um, I, uh, that's been my favourite part because <laughs> it's always lovely to be able to speak about people that that started the journey for you. So, um. I really appreciate uh, having a quick chat at the start about that, mate. So I got a bit out of it too.
0: Yeah, well, my, my brother that was coached by Marguerite uh, mentioned to me the other day how much of a, a fun season he had. Uh, so that was a, that's great. She always had such – or how I remember your mum is so much energy. Just around the schoolyard, she had so much energy which is, uh, you know, what a gift for kids.
1: Yeah, Mm. she is. uh, If you're ever really struggling for content, mate, she will talk to you for four hours, and she's 71 (laughs) going on 17. So um,
0: uh,
1: she's she's ramping up, not ramping down.
0: No, good on her. (laughs) All right, Pat, so um, where can people get in touch if they want to reach out? Uh, Look, on the MSL website, you can, um, or...
1: uh, I I'll always give you my phone number, Dave, but uh, no, uh, Patrick.HowardEmpowerMSL.com um, and uh, really look forward to hearing from anybody and, and I really appreciate your time, Dave.
0: Oh, no, that's perfect. Thanks, Pat. Really appreciate it. Super. Thanks very much. Cheers, mate. That's it for today's episode of Beyond the Obvious. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues. If you'd like to get in touch, please reach out to me on LinkedIn, or on my website, davidhobart.com. Until next time, hooray.